Now, I don't need to tell you that we live in a culture for that, that for much of the time tries to, tries to pretend that there is no such thing as death. I guess that's because of the unprecedented prosperity in which we uh, live and uh, all those medical advances over the last hundred years. And uh, they allow us to push death out of our direct experience for surprisingly long stretches of time. Uh, But we can't escape it. Uh, I think we're feeling that very keenly at the moment as a a church family, um, as you'll have uh, heard in the prayers a little earlier. And I'm very conscious this morning that as we discuss this topic of of death and resurrection, that this is going to be very raw for some of you uh, this morning, very difficult. But the world around us can't escape it either. Uh, You'll have noticed on the news that the news at the moment is just simply stuffed full of death. Death in Africa. Death in Norway. Uh, When I heard about the Norwegian massacre on the radio yesterday uh, morning, it was very clear that this is one of those events where even the the newsreaders couldn't quite believe what they were hearing. They couldn't process what was happening. And they kept hesitating and uh, stuttering and overwhelmed as they were reading out uh, uh, what had happened. Overwhelmed by the, the reckless brutality of it all. We also can't escape the effects that death, or what we think about death, has on uh, our behaviour. So whether it's the vast sums of money uh, that we spend trying to disguise our mortality on the one hand, or the the vast sums of money uh, we spend trying to forget about it on the other. Death really matters. It has an impact on how we live now. We'll return to that uh, right at the end this morning. And it, I guess, has ever been so. Even the Victorians who did death much better than we do now had some funny ideas about it and it had some strange effects on their behaviour. You'll know the story about um, how in the early 19th century medical colleges were were short of uh, bodies, of cadavers for dissection by medical students. So um, enterprising members of the Victorian underworld began digging them up from, from graveyards. The likes of the body snatchers, those, those bodies were, were simply a shortcut to a tidy sum of money. Apparently for, for one body, you can get as, as much as a, a labourer could le- earn in a year. But for the families of the deceased, the practice was thought to put the resurrection hopes of their dead relatives at risk. So people went to extraordinary length to protect those bodies. And one of these was something called the, the mort safe. There's one of them in the, uh, the Science Museum in London. It's a, a huge metal cage locked around a coffin. Others put their dead relatives in triple-lined coffins and then sealed them in vaults behind grids of iron bars. If we go further back still, all all the way back to the first century and and, and Greece and the the city of Corinth, uh, which is where we're we're the setting of of the letter that we're reading this morning, Uh, we also find people, even Christian people, struggling with death and its implications. There are differences, to be sure, but the the similarities are very, very striking. And for Christians in the 21st century forward and in 1st century Corinth, the issue is and was very similar. You see, we we hear Paul's call at the the end of this chapter, uh, much as the Corinthians heard it in the first place. Stand firm, says Paul, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. We know that that is what we should be doing. We know that that's what Christianity is all about. And yet for us, as well as for them, something may well be holding us back in that commitment. 
There is this nagging thought that everything that we're involved in, uh, we are believing and laboring in vain. And for us, as for them, uh, that's all tied up with how we think about death. But you can also see in the second half of verse 58 that Paul's goal in this chapter is that the Corinthians may be sure that their labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's, what, that's the issue he's, he's pressing in this chapter. That's what he's arguing for in, his chap, in this chapter with all his might. He's having to do that because there are some in Corinth and in the Corinthian churches with beliefs about death that would render everything that he's been arguing for, everything that they've committed to in terms of their Christian faith, would render it purposeless. Uh, you can see that for yourself. You turn back a page to verse 12. Paul asks incredulously, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, as we were saying last week, the resurrection of the dead is the, is the Christian belief that there will be some future time when everyone who has died will be raised and those who belong to Jesus Christ will, Christ will be given an enduring, eternal life. Last week, we were, hear, we were hearing Paul remind us just how central that belief is to the Christian gospel. You can't take it away. But there are clearly some in the Corinthian churches who just haven't got it yet. This is just too extraordinary for them. They can't quite believe it. They haven't quite yet escaped from the beliefs of the, the culture around them. Uh, where would you would find people in the ancient world uh, who would say that bodies are by nature perishable by nature corruptible that's what they're they're like and nothing can change it they have no future after death they simply decompose and decay on the other hand they would have said that that the soul or the spirit may last forever Uh, for such people to talk about a a bodily resurrection was a nonsense i suppose it's not a million miles from what uh, many people think about death today Most people, if you would ask them, would say that their bodies uh, after death are just going to rot. And yet they continue to talk about something on the other side, some sort of future. It's a similar kind of mistake, isn't it? Uh, That to be truly spiritual, you you forget about the body side of things. Um, try Try and focus on something else. Or Paul will have none of it. And his argument in the second half of the chapter, this is from verses 35 uh, through to 57, is characteristically robust. To say and believe that there is for sure a bodily resurrection is something that makes sense. We can, we can deal with the issues, we can deal with the objections. But before we listen in to what he said to the Corinthians, let me remind you that he was certainly not the first person to argue this way. You may remember that Jesus too was quizzed by people, uh, like the Sadducees, for example, who doubted the possibility of a future resurrection. And Jesus' answer was similarly robust. He said to them straight away, You are in error. You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And you can see, glancing down the the headings on on the outline, that Paul's answer is very similar to Jesus' answer. In fact, he ends by talking about the scriptures. And he begins by talking about the power of God in nature and creation. What's slightly different, what's slightly different, significantly different, in fact, is in the middle, Paul is also 
able to point us to an actual example of bodily resurrection in Jesus himself. But let's take it step by step. First then, the bodily resurrection of the dead makes sense because we can look to the creative power of God which is already patterned in nature. We're about halfway uh, through the chapter. Uh, This is verse 35 and Paul takes us in a slightly new direction. But some may ask, he says, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? So this is how it's gone. In the the first half of the chapter, Paul has shown us just how absurd it is for Christians to say there is no resurrection. But now he wants to to dig deeper into that issue. Why are there some people saying there is no resurrection? Well, maybe it's because they have uh, questions like these ones. First of all, how, in what way, in what manner will, will dead corpses be reformed into living bodies? And we can imagine the Corinthians thinking to themselves at this point, isn't that, yeah, isn't that impossible? Isn't that unimaginable? Second question, with what kind of body will they come? And we can imagine the Corinthians thinking to themselves, aren't, aren't bodies by, by nature perishable? You know, they get that raised, but that they'll still have death in them. They're still going to you know, decay and die in the end. For such people, the resurrection is, is very... Uh, the resurrection is, is very hard to believe because the idea of a, of a resurrection body is unimaginable to them. Now, I guess we could add our, our own questions here. Uh, think about the, the, the question that the Victorians were worried about. Uh, what about all those bodies that are cut into little pieces by over-enthusiastic medical students? What's going to happen to them? What about the people blown in, into pieces in the First World War and the explosions? Or vaporised in a firestorm in the Second World War? What about people who died at sea? What's going to happen to them at the resurrection? They're going to come back to life and just drown again, aren't they? How is it possible? How is it possible for all of these different kinds of dead bodies to be, to be brought back to life? And what will our resurrection bodies look like? What will I be like? What age will I... What age will we look? What sort of condition will I be in? Do I get to choose? Can I perhaps suggest one or two modifications? Now you, can see, you can see for yourselves that Paul doesn't answer all these questions in detail here. But what he does do is take us to task for doubting that this process is possible. Take a look at verse 36. This is Paul's first response to such questions. How foolish. Uh, sometimes I guess uh, the most loving approach is to be straight with people and that's what uh, Paul is. And Paul goes on, how foolish to ask such questions because you already know that this pattern of things makes sense. You've seen it at work in your gardens and in your fields. You already know that when you sow something, what you sow in the ground doesn't come to life unless it dies first, so to speak, unless it's buried as if dead, there is no life. So I uh, take a seed thus and I plant it in this pot and, you know, cover it over and, well, uh, for the moment, um, 
nothing much is happening. And uh, I'm slightly afraid that this illustration is going to take a little time. It's um, looking a little lifeless and hopeless at the moment. But if we did have time, then eventually there would be life. Now perhaps we know a little bit more than Paul did or the Corinthians did about the biology of how you know, that seed will, will germinate and, be, and become a living plant. But suppose for the moment that we didn't know that and that uh, something apparently dead then becomes alive. Even if we don't understand the mechanism, even if we don't know, understand how it's going to happen, it's a reasonable thing for us to expect. Likewise, we can take any of those questions that we had earlier. You know, how is it possible that God is going to take someone who's vaporized in fire and reform them into a living, breathing body? We don't know. We don't know how he's going to do that. But we can understand the pattern. It's not unreasonable to claim that life can come from apparent death. What's more, the seed helps us to understand that what comes out in the end may indeed have a different quality to it. And this is another point that uh, Paul makes in verse 37. When you sow, he says, you do not plant the body that, uh, that will be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. In other words, they... You know, the, the plant that results is, is very, may be very different to the seed that was planted. Quite what that end result is, is in the hands of God the Creator. Verse 38, God gives it a body as he has determined. It's his choice. And you see that what Paul then does is reflect upon that power of God in creating things. And I think he's reflecting here on how God created things out of nothing in the first place. You can see in the next few verses that Paul goes through most of what God creates in Genesis chapter 1. He's working backwards through the days of creation in that chapter. So we get man, animals, birds, fish, stars, sun and moon. All these things mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. All these things that God created out of nothing. So just as God was powerful to great things out of nothing in the the beginning, giving each kind the qualities he desired, so he is powerful to create new life out of death. And he gives that new life the kind of quality that he chooses. He's not going to be constrained by what the Corinthians think about it. He's not going to be constrained by that they insist that the bodies must be perishable. No, this new life... This new life, verses 42 and 43, is by God's choice, imperishable, glorious, powerful. The argument reaches a climax, verse 44. Paul says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We need to be a little careful here. Paul's not emphatically not saying uh, that the body is sown physical and then raised non-physical. That would be a misreading that would contradict everything that he's been uh, saying so far. Rather, it's sown with life as we understand it now. Life as described in the previous verses, it's sown natural in the sense of being perishable, dishonourable because of sin, weak. And it is raised spiritual, meaning raised with the life-giving power of the Spirit of God. 
hope you can see what Paul's doing here. He's undermining the Corinthians' thinking. Remember, their great desire was to be spiritual people. Well, says Paul, spiritual people believe in and seek the spiritual body made alive at the resurrection. A physical body, but imperishable, glorious, powerful. It is indeed an extraordinary hope. It's, you can understand why they were struggling uh, with the idea. It's beyond our wildest expectations for the future. But it's comprehensible. It's reasonable. It's imaginable. Such things are perfectly possible for our all-powerful creator God. Think about it, says Paul, and know that your belief and labour in the Lord is not in vain. Second point, this is verses 45 through to 49. The bodily resurrection of the dead makes sense because we can look to the creative power of God already patterned in Jesus. Now, for a representative of mortal humanity, says Paul, um, there is someone we can look to. We can look to, to, to Adam. That's the, that's the way the Bible presents it. You know, because we're caught up in the same pattern of sin and death that he began. Uh, you know, that cycle that goes from, from sin to death and death to sin. The hopeless cycle that we were talking about last week. Uh, but there's a new pattern. And the amazing thing now is that we don't have to merely imagine what the new pattern was going to be like. Because the new pattern has already appeared in the resurrected Jesus, the man from heaven. In verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. So as was the earthly man, so are those of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. The one shows us what we're like now. The other shows us what we will be like in the future. Verse 49, And just as we are born the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I hope you can see this is really helpful in grounding what our, our future condition is going to be like. This knocks down once for all the suggestion that the only future we can look forward to is a, a kind of non-physical future. But as we engage with the resurrected uh, Jesus in the Bible and especially in the Gospel accounts, we find that he can be touched as Thomas touched him. He is recognisable and physical. He's not some sort of ghostly presence. He talks. He interacts. He's real. Luke tells us he even eats some fish with his disciples. So the resurrected Jesus takes us from the mere concept of new life to, to, to a concrete reality. Look to him, says Paul, and know that your belief and labour in the Lord is not in vain. Third point, this is verses 53 to 57. The bodily resurrection of the dead makes sense because we can look to the created power of God in history, already patterned in the scriptures. Now Paul begins here by agreeing with the Corinthians in some respects. that They're right in some respects, he says, verse 50, to say that flesh and blood, as they are now, remember that's as they are now, perishable, dishonourable because of sin, weak, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The imperishable cannot inherit 
the imperishable. That is right. But they are wrong, very wrong, to say that things will always be this way. A change is coming. Any time now, in fact, says Paul. And it's not a change that's just come out of the blue. It's not as if Paul has just made this up. This is where the whole of history is heading. And this climactic victory is something that we can be a part of through our Lord Jesus Christ. But the change is now coming is the secret that the Christian gospel uncovers for us. Verse 51, but listen, says Paul, I tell you a mystery. That is, I tell you something new that's been uncovered by God for you. We may not all sleep, he says. That is, perhaps not all Christians will face death. But we will certainly be changed. There is change coming. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed That the change is what the whole of history is moving towards, is what the prophets foresaw. So we go back hundreds of years to the prophet Isaiah and his vision of a future banquet laid on by God himself for his people. We had it read to us earlier. This is a place where God will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, says Isaiah. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever in victory. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. Or we could go back and read God's promises through the prophet Hosea. I will ransom them, for it from the, ransom them from the power of the grave, says the Lord. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? Finally, that this is a victory over sin and death that we can be a part of. Well, that's what makes the Christian gospel good news for the disheartened, good news for those who are mourning. Sin leads to death as a right judgment of the moral law. You can see Paul saying that in verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Power of sin is the law. In other words, there's, there's no natural escape from this. But thanks be to God, says Paul. And look at his language here. There's no natural escape from it. But he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as he comes to a climax in this chapter, I think we know that, that something of the, of the kind of feeling that Paul's trying to evoke, evoke here, uh, we see it to, in a kind of limited way in sporting events. So a, a striker is, from our team is surging towards an open goal. Uh, say a, a British runner at the Olympics is has overtaken the opposition at the last moment, is metres away from the finishing line. We know what the crowd sounds like at times like that. There's a, there's a volume building to it. There's a, an intensification of it. We'll multiply that a million times and, and, and we get a sense of what is building up as history unfolds and comes to its climax. Get ready to shout, Paul is saying, as the trumpet sounds. Shouts. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Meditate on these things, says Paul. Picture that great arc of history surging towards this victorious conclusion in the Lord Jesus Christ and know that your belief and labour in the Lord is not in vain. So let me uh, summarise the arguments here. 
Paul is saying this. Paul is saying that the bodily resurrection of the dead is a reasonable, warranted belief for us to have. It's a concept that makes sense. We can see the same pattern in nature and creation. But this is much more than just an idea, a concept. The reality has been seen and touched in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that the great arc of history is now coming to a close. The resurrection victory is in sight. So I'm watching my own body, perhaps, uh, falling gradually to pieces. I'm uh, watching the body of someone I know slowly give up. I'm struggling to engage with someone suffering from dementia, perhaps. I'm looking in unbelief and uncontrollable grief at the dead body of someone I love. I'm a Norwegian parent, perhaps, having to identify the body of my child. I'm at a funeral, weeping. I'm holding an, an urn of ashes in my, in my fingers, trying to picture in my mind the face of the person. I'm thinking of a friend of mine looking tearfully at a, a glacier in the French Alps where his brother fell in, a, in an avalanche, his body never recovered. I'm thinking of another friend of mine dying of cancer in his 30s, his wife at his side. These are all situations of apparent hopelessness. Faced with such things, we may well find ourselves in despair, thinking, there is no hope here. This is it. Everything has been lost. But Paul wants us to think again. Think about that seed planted in the ground. Also apparently lost and gone and hopeless. And yet in due time, springing up into life. The kind of life that is different. The kind of life that God chooses it for, for it to have. And for us that will be an imperishable life. Think of Jesus. His resurrection in particular guarantees the resurrection to come. Think of the great arc of history surging towards this final victory. But lastly, finally, think about you, how you live now in the light of all this. How you live now. Verse 58 again. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. In other words, once we're properly connected to our resurrection future through the Lord Jesus Christ, then that life can start flowing back into the present. It can start showing itself now. I wondered if you were as horrified as I was that the uh, Anders uh, Brevik, the uh, 32-year-old man who's been arrested uh, as a suspect um, for Friday's attacks in Norway, describes himself on his Facebook page as Christian. Horrifying, terrible thing that is. 
Doesn't that make you want to cry out in protest? No, that's not what it's all about. Doesn't that make you want to do something about it? Well, thinking, doing what we're doing this morning and thinking through the resurrection. The Christianity and the Christian hope is all about life and not about death. That's a very good place to start. This is the key to everything, in fact, that Paul has said throughout this very long letter. Every issue that is addressed along the way is the key to showing what Christianity is really about, what true spirituality really is. And just as uh, uh, we finish, I've listed there on your handout some of the issues that Paul has covered at, at some length in this letter. For example, the resurrection is the key to all that is said about a truly spiritual attitude to sex and marriage. You see, if I, if I think about my body as disposable, as having no future, then I, I don't really care about what I do with it. But once I understand that it does have a future, and even now is it, is it a place where the Holy Spirit of God dwells, I will treat it, start to treat it with much more respect, won't I? The resurrection is the key to all that Paul has said about, about a truly spiritual attitude to food and eating. You see, if I'm, I'm thinking about my body as disposable, as having no future, and perhaps I'm thinking about everyone else's body as, as disposable and having no future, then I'll do things like eating without thinking about it, and without thinking about the effect that it might have on others. I'll start to be casual about my own faith and other people's faith. The dangers of idolatry won't bother me too much. But once I start to understand the supreme value of the future, I'll start to be much more careful. If the faith of others becomes threatened by my eating habits or, or indeed anything else that I'm doing, then I'll change them. The resurrection is also the key to a truly spiritual attitude to meeting together. If I think about my body as disposable, as having no future, then I'm not likely to be bothered about real physical people when we meet together like this. I'll come as if I've come on my own. Uh, I'll start looking for something else, some sort of higher spiritual experience perhaps. But once I understand that the resurrection is real, then the body of Christ, now notice Paul's language here, it's very striking, isn't it? The body of Christ, that is the church, will start to matter to me. Ugly or beautiful, smelly or fragrant, poor or rich, slow or smart, these are people around me whom I am going to be with forever. Just take a sideways glance at the the people around you uh, right now. I'm not asking you to classify them into ugly, beautiful, fragrant, smelly, that sort of thing. I want you to think about the fact that you're going to be with them forever. Doesn't that kind of change your attitude to them. Straight away, my, my, my love is going to be expanded, isn't it? Uh, my love for you suddenly becomes eternally meaningful. But finally, of course, the resurrection is the key to facing death and the future. If I think about my body as disposable, as having no future, then death will not move me as it should I can be coldly indifferent to it. I can just let it pass me by. Or worse, perhaps. But once I understand the reality of death and life and understand it through the death and resurrection of Jesus, two things should happen to me. Two big changes in me. 
first, first I can weep freely. Augustine once said that I, I refute a lack of emotion at death with two words. Two words from John chapter 11. Jesus wept. So of Jesus I weep and weep freely at death. But second, through the tears as it were, I can also laugh with joy because of the the coming victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can eagerly await the sound of the trumpet, the cry that death has finally been swallowed up in victory. And in that hope I stand firm. I will not be moved. I will give myself fully to the work of the Lord because I know my labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together.